About 25 years ago, there was a young woman named Don Loggins. She was being raised by her grandmother along with her brother. However, their grandmother didn't teach them hygiene at all. Trash was piled up throughout the house several feet high. They had to step over the trash. They didn't take it to the curb or any of that. It's not like they missed the trash one week and kept it in the house. They just didn't take the trash out. It spilled over the bag and it just laid on the floor in piles throughout the house. Uh, Roaches were infesting the trash and scurrying all over the floor. The kids, Don and her brother, uh, would go months without showering, often wearing the same unwashed clothes to school for weeks. And inevitably, as 12-year-old children going to middle school, they were ruthlessly mocked by the other kids at school. Well, when Don was about 12, both kids were taken back in by their parents from the grandmother. However, their parents were both addicts, and the addiction led to the neglect of the kids. They didn't have any electricity in the house. They didn't have any running water in the house because all the money they had went to other activities. So the kids would sneak off to the park When their parents were occupied, the kids would sneak off to the park and wash themselves in the public restrooms. They would bring buckets from home filled with water to pour in the toilet tank at home so they could flush while they were there. And uh, some school staff noticed what was happening, and they noticed the kids not getting any of their homework done. And they told the, the kids told the school staff it was because they didn't have any electricity. They couldn't see the work to do the homework. So the school staff gathered some money and bought them some candles so the kids could just do their homework at home. And keep in mind, again, this was 20, 25 years ago. We're not talking 125 years ago. This was in recent memory. And so these uh, uh, kids went through all of this. And in the midst of all this, you know, they're not expected to accomplish very much in school because of all the distractions in their past, because of all the stuff that they're going through, how difficult their lives had been up until that point. But even in the midst of that, young Don was able to excel in school. So much so that the summer before her senior year in school, she was accepted into this uh, gifted program that was reserved only for the very best students in the entire state. They would assemble almost in like an academic camp during the summer before her senior year, and she went to this. Uh, If nothing else, they provided food every day and a place to sleep and a shower. But when she got home just a few days before her senior year of high school was supposed to start, she went to her house and discovered her parents had moved and abandoned her. Her brother had disappeared, and her grandmother had been placed into a packed homeless shelter. And Dawn was there a few days before senior year, no place to live. And so she went to school, and the guidance counselor there at the school immediately took the reins, uh, got Dawn set up to stay on a friend's couch for a little while. And then the guidance counselor found a uh, uh, custodian and uh, bus driver who were able to take her in for the rest of the year. Again, Dawn was not expected to do very much. 
You know, she got her a job in the school helping the custodian uh, clean up the school after school finished. So she had all of her hardships. She had this job after school that went late on into the evenings sometimes. But she was still able to uh, uh, do exceptionally well, so much so that she maintained not only an A average, the lowest grade she got all year was a 94. I know some of us would dream of getting a 94, but that was the lowest grade she got all year. So as the, her senior year progressed, she started applying to colleges. And she applied to four, you know, sensible, safe schools. Um, and then she just thought, why not? She applied to one outlandish shoot-the-moon school that no one from her high school, no one from her hometown had ever been accepted to this school, much less gone. She just thought, why not? Might as well. And so she applies to these five schools, and as time goes on, she begins to get packets in the mail. Not just little envelopes, but if you've ever gotten, seen those acceptance packets from college, they're huge deal. Massive envelopes. Some, some of them have confetti in them. Sometimes you'll get a little package with it, like a coffee mug or a T-shirt or something, because they want you to rep their school. And so from those four you know, safe schools, from those four sensible schools, she got these big old packets, but nothing from the other school. Days went by, weeks went by, nothing, no word. She said, well, you know, it, it, it was just whatever anyway. And uh, one day in the mail comes this little nondescript envelope uh, with a stamp up in the corner from that school. You know, it wasn't a big packet, it was just a little envelope. And she's thinking, oh, well, that's it, I guess. You know, it's not a big packet, so it must be a rejection letter here. So she takes this and... She opens this letter, and she reads, all while thinking it was crazy to apply to this school anyway. And the top line of the letter says, the admissions committee has asked me to inform you that you will be admitted, admitted to Harvard College class of 2016. We send advanced letters as an early positive indication only to outstanding applicants such as yourself. You know, some will try to use your past to hold your back. But your past doesn't have to dictate your future. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. It'll be on page 874 if you want to use a Bible in the pew rack there in front of you. And as I say frequently, if you do not have a Bible, please take that Bible in the pew rack home because everybody needs a Bible. Luke chapter 15. We began Luke chapter 15 last week and, and looking at what's going on here. Jesus has been teaching. He had eaten uh, dinner at a Pharisee's house uh, because he was gathering a following and the Pharisee not necessarily wanting to follow Jesus himself, but Jesus was an important person and so the Pharisee wanted himself to be considered important by association. Brings Jesus into his house, but then Jesus teaches while he's in this Pharisee's house and corrects some of the Pharisee's own thinking and own teaching and own attitudes while he's there. And then, in among all of this, as Jesus is teaching, some people begin to gather around Jesus and come to hear him speak, who, in their first century culture, did not have the greatest reputations. Uh, they were called, uh, some of them were tax collectors, which were considered to be traitors to the Jewish culture. Others were called sinners, not just like, as we would use that word sinner today, it was almost like a racial slur, the way they used it back then to talk about people of that 
class. And uh, the Pharisees and scribes were talking about the people this way, that Jesus was allowing these kind of uh, people to come around him. And so Jesus tells three parables here in Luke 15 in response to that attitude of the Pharisees and the scribes and him allowing these kind of people to come around him. First one, he tells a parable about uh, lost sheep and the shepherd going and finding the lost sheep and celebrating that he found it. Then Jesus tells a story of a woman who lost a coin, a tenth of all she had, searching diligently until she found it and then celebrating when she found it. The, the, all three of these parables are about lost people, people who don't know Jesus, don't, are not saved, then being saved and the celebration that should be in response to that. And then Jesus gets to the third parable, and it is quite possibly one of the most famous teachings in all of Scripture. It has been replicated throughout media that we have in this world uh, in a whole variety of ways. So Luke chapter 15, Jesus says this, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now this was an incredible insult. Uh, the, the younger son says, give me my inheritance today. Now, it was customary at times uh, that it would go ahead, it, the, the property would go ahead and be divided up among the children, but the children would not have access to it without the authority of the father, almost like a, like a trust being set up kind of a deal. Uh, they knew what they were going to get when the, the parent died. Well, this younger son, the way Jesus is telling it is, this is never done in culture. I mean, this is the ultimate spit-in-your-parents-face insult that could be possibly even thought of. None of the Jews would have even suggested something like this. It was so, you know, just, just despicable that you would do something like this. That the son is saying, give me my inheritance, as though he's saying, I wish you were dead and I could have what I wanted. And so the father takes all of his property, divides it up, gives some to the older son, gives some to the younger son. And look at what the younger son does. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. He took all that he had and went to a far country. Now, that description of far country, this is a Gentile area. He, a Jew, taken his property, or, or uh, to put it in context, he converts the property his father gives him into cash, sells it all, takes it to first century pawn shop, sells it all, goes on a long journey to a Gentile country. And it says he squandered everything in reckless living. It would have been considered almost an unforgivable offense to intentionally lose family, tribal, Israelite inheritance to Gentiles. They would, I mean, it never would have happened. They, they would not have done that. It, would have been, it should have been passed on to the next generation. But the son was of a mind to be so selfish, he takes it and he just gives it away. That's why Jesus says a far country to Gentiles, and he squanders it in reckless living. Now that word reckless, it implies irresponsible wasteful and immoral behavior. Like it doesn't go into you know, specifics here, but he's saying it is, what he is doing with this money is considered immoral by any measure around the world with his money here in verse 13. 
Look at verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, a Gentile, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Money runs out, so do his friends. Money runs out, no one will help him out. So he's there in this faraway country, surrounded by people he doesn't know, no family nearby. He, he has no money, it's all gone, and he has to go and hire himself out as a servant to one of the Gentiles, where the only job he could find was to feed pigs. Again, incredible insult to a Jew. So every element of this story thus far is this son is, is intentionally doing things and doing things because of his circumstances that are the ultimate offense, the ultimate insult. He's feeding pigs, desiring to eat what the pigs are eating. He's so hungry. Which any Jew listening to this parable from, from Jesus would have instantly said, no Jew's going to do that. They would rather starve to death than that. But he's so hungry that those thoughts begin to come into his mind. Uh, look at the uh, next verse, 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I, I love the way Jesus phrases that. When he came to himself. When he finally realized, when he finally remembered. Have you, have you ever been going down a, a particular line of thinking that, At some point, walking down that line of thinking, you have an aha moment, and you're like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever thought of in my life. I don't even know how I got there. And then you begin to go almost in the complete opposite direction. Or maybe somebody in your family says, what are you doing? That is ridiculous. Stop it. You get over here and do that, and you turn around and you do the other thing. Uh, But it's almost like that. He comes to himself. He, He realizes, what in the world am I doing? Even my father's servants have way more than enough bread. They, they throw it away, they've got so much, and I'm out here wasting away. So look at what he does. Verse 18, he comes up with a plan. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he comes up with this plan, right? He's going to go home. He's going to tell his father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned in front of you. I've insulted you. I have offended you. Just You don't have to take me back as your son. Just let me be your servant because I need food. So he comes up with this plan, and he sets out from that faraway country to go home. Undoubtedly, he's repeating this conversation. He's anticipating in his mind the whole way home. Have you ever had that where you anticipate a difficult conversation you've got to have? You've got to go and ask for forgiveness, possibly admit you were wrong, and you're walking through what you're going to say, what they potentially might say, and then how you're going to respond to what they say. But if they say this, and you're thinking through how you're going to respond over here, He's going through all of these emotions on his way home as he's walking. Maybe at some points he's anticipating his father saying some not nice things, so maybe he slows down a little bit. But he's walking home. Verse 22. But the father, oh, no, that's that's too far down. Let's get back up. Uh, Verse 20. 
And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Ran, embraced him, and kissed him. Now, running in the first century was considered undignified and humiliating. But humiliation before others cannot restrain the love and the joy and the grace of the father. He was was standing out front waiting for his son to come home. He sees him and he feels compassion and he runs. Now remember, the son's not anticipating compassion. The son's not anticipating any kind of grace and mercy. The son's anticipating just hostility, anger, hurt. That's what the son's anticipating, but what he receives is compassion. I remember a story of, uh, from Billy Graham's funeral. Any of y'all watch Billy Graham's funeral when he died a number of years ago? It's on YouTube. It's phenomenal. You've got to go watch it. Um, Michael W. Smith does the music. I mean, how can you get any better than that? But uh, all of his kids get up and share a little bit about Billy Graham. And one of his daughters uh, shares that uh, she'd been married for a number of years, and she and her husband got divorced. And she felt incredible embarrassment as Billy Graham's daughter. Um, She never heard that from her father, but she anticipated that from her father. So that she went out and found a relationship immediately with someone who did not have the best character. And she had been told by her family, I don't know about this, he's not great. I, I know you can't see it, but he, he's not making the best decisions in some of his life. Her friends all told her the same thing. But she hurried up and married this guy. Uh, she said, I think it was, like, it was like New Year's Day one year, she, she went and married this guy. And she said she knew within a few hours after being married, she made a horrible mistake. She stayed with him for a few weeks. Five weeks after being married, she left him. Uh, and they were going to get a divorce, and she makes the trek home, anticipating the conversation with Billy Graham. Imagine having to confess to your parent, your father, your mother, you did something wrong. They were right. Now imagine that parent being Billy Graham. Now Billy Graham at that time, he lived on a, a mountain, and she says in her story during the funeral, she says she can, and she's, just like the son in the story, she's playing through the conversation in her mind as she winds her way up the road to get up to her parents' house. She says she, she rounds the last bend and her father's standing in the driveway. He's not in the house. He's not even on the porch. She said he's standing in the driveway and her heart be- drops. She doesn't know what's going to happen. She, gets out, she, she, she pulls up next to him, gets out of the car, She says, he ran over, embraced me, wouldn't let me say anything. He said, we are so glad you're home. We're so glad you're home. She said, my father showed me in that moment love, mercy, and grace that I didn't think anybody would. And so this father in the story runs to his son. Even though his son insulted him, even though his son in his actions said, I wish you were dead, the father runs to him, feels compassion, embraces him, and kisses him. 
And so the son pushes him back and begins to say his speech. He says in verse uh, 21, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he's halfway through his speech. He's still got the part about, I I want to become one of your servants. He hadn't got to that part yet. He's gotten halfway through his speech, but his father's not listening to him. Verse uh, 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So he suits him out. He's got no feet, give him shoes. He he needs a robe, give him a robe. Give him a ring that displays authority, that displays who he is with me, relationship. And then he says, kill the fattened calf. They could have, you know, eaten a smaller animal. But by saying kill the fattened calf, this is an indication just like the other two parables with the sheep and with the lost coin that the whole community would be invited to the celebration because that's a lot of food. I don't know if you all ever saw the I Love Lucy episode where they bought half a cow and put it in the freezer. It, that's a lot of food. And, and so he says, kill the fattened calf because everybody's coming to celebrate because my son is alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. And so they began to celebrate. They began to celebrate. Even though the son, younger son there, didn't anticipate this was going to happen. You know, our expectations and anticipations often downplay compassion when we anticipate something happening or going a certain way. The younger son, in reality, superimposed his own heart and motivations onto his father. And in so doing, he, what he does, he fosters a, an ingrown lie about how his father's going to respond. Because in truth, that probably would have been how he responded. I mean, that's how he did, resp- he did act towards his father without caring. But by thinking through that and, and taking his own reactions and putting it on his father, even though that's not who his father was, he ended up wasting so much time and increasing his own personal crippling anxiety about the situation in the moment because he tried to think that his father was like him, but his father's not like him. His father offered compassion. His father offered love. And so there's a difficult truth in that. Attempted anticipation of the unseen motivations of others is really a projection of the shade of my own heart. When I try to anticipate somebody else's motivations in a situation, unbeknownst to me, maybe subtly, subconsciously, I'm projecting on them the shade of my own heart. You say, oh, but... That person that I'm anticipating interacting with, they have a history. They have a, they have a pattern of behavior that stems from that kind of evil motivation, that kind of malicious action. They're going to act that way. I just know they are. We don't know they are. Maybe they do have a pattern of behavior. But we don't know how they're going to act until they act. I know many people who've acted poorly and then act good later on. What I'm doing in that moment, though, is I'm projecting my own sinful heart onto the anticipation of what they're going to do. 
There's no forgiveness in that. There's no compassion in that. There's no grace in that. There's no imitation of the Father in that. There's a display of my own sin nature in that. And that's what the Son did in anticipating His Father. I can't see the in and out of every person's life that would lead them to make a unique decision based upon the moment. I make a deduction, I can make an assumption, but that always gets me in a bad spot when we make assumptions about other people and their situations and their decision and their opportunity. When we make assumptions. I remember growing up, my dad said, never make assumptions. You always get in a worse situation. The younger son seemed to understand something, even though he anticipated his uh, uh, poorly of his father. But what he does seem to understand is his need for his father's forgiveness. He understands that he needs to go to his father. The only way that he can live is to go to his father, offer confession and repentance. Because if he doesn't go to his father, all he's going to find is death. His father's got the source. His father's got the supply. His father's got every kind of food he needs to survive. And he can't survive without going to his father first, which is the truth of our situation. We can't survive without going to the father first. So the younger son goes to to his father. Even though he anticipates poorly from his father, he finds compassion from his father and forgiveness from his father. He finds elevation from his father. But the older son did not want to forgive as quickly as, the, as his father did. Which in reality, it was the father, the father was the only one in a position to forgive. The father was the one sinned against. God was sinned against and the father was sinned against. Not the brother. But the brother seems to take on offense. Even though it was the father who was offended. Well, as we're going to see, the other son... The brother wants, I guess you could call it justice, so to speak, without forgiveness, without mercy. He wants absolute justice without mercy because of what his son did to his father. And he doesn't want any forgiveness. He said, okay, you forgive him, father. I don't. He needs to be stopped because of this mess. And so the older son is having an issue here. Look at verse 25. Now, I want you to remember at this point, Jesus is telling this parable to scribes and Pharisees who were complaining because Jesus was offering grace and mercy and forgiveness to people they thought were sinners. And up until this point, the the parable of the sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and even thus far in the parable of the lost son, Jesus has only talked about what needs to happen when what is lost, a person who is lost, comes to faith. Celebration. Forgiveness. Now he's going to tell a part of the story about the scribes and Pharisees. He says, but this is who you guys are. Okay, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. 
So the older son's coming in from, from doing the work, doing the work. He comes in. He's sweaty. He's stinky. He's been working hard. He, he, he hears. I love the way that describes it too. Uh, he hears the music and he hears the dancing. It's not necessarily that he sees it. Maybe he sees all the traffic and, you know, stuff parked in his front yard, not vehicles, but all the donkeys and camels and whatnot parked in his front yard. And he's thinking, what in the world is going on? He calls a servant over. servant says, your father killed the fattened calf because your brother's home. And your father received him back safe and sound. So the brother celebrated, right? My brother's home. I can't wait to give him a hug. I'm so excited. I kept his room nice and neat just the way it was when he left. That's not his attitude at all. Anybody in here have siblings? All right, just saying. Here we go. Verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. Now I want to point something out before we get there. Younger son leaves with great insult, with great offense, by every measure. Comes home, father goes to him. Older son comes in from the field, mad and angry. Father goes to him. In both cases, the father went to the son. In both cases, the father approached the son. Didn't leave them to their own devices. He went to them. And it says entreated them to, to see what's the matter, to, to offer them something. So this is the son's response. Verse 29. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I want to point something out in what the son says here, the older son says here. I have served you, I have never disobeyed your commands, but you didn't give me what I expected. For my own personal celebration. The older brother is assuming his relationship with his father, his reward from his father are a result of his works. He says, you didn't give me anything even though I worked for you. You didn't give me anything even though I did all this stuff for you. He's assuming relationship based upon his work. I did all this for you and you didn't give it to me. The older brother brought his works to his father, demanding honor. But the younger son came as a destitute sinner in desperate need, who was acknowledging his need for his father's salvation. Great difference. The older son is prideful. The the older son is jealous. He wants credit. He wants attention. But the father doesn't slap him down. The father doesn't say, stop talking to me that way. What does the father do? The father says in verse, oh, the older son's not done yet. Verse 30. He says, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. You honor him, even though he sinned in this way. Verse 31. And he, the father, said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost 
and is found. Now, a couple of things. That's the end of the parable. We don't find out how the older brother responded to this, this, these words from the father. It's fitting to celebrate your brother coming home. Anything I have, it's yours. I gave it to you. When I divided up my property and gave him that, I gave you everything else. It's yours. What I have is yours. But it's time to celebrate because he was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's open-ended here because possibly we're meant to ask of ourselves, how will we respond to the Father's forgiveness of others? When we feel as though we are in the right and we are justified in how we feel, and we have been more faithful, and we have earned a greater reward, and, and, and he lets them in and gives them honor. How are we going to respond? Like the younger son coming, understanding our own sinfulness? Or like the older son, angry that we're not getting more? We put in our time, we did our work, now it's time for me to have mine. Give me, give me. That verse 32, notice those first three words. It was fitting. In the original language, that literally means it was necessary. Not just it was right to do it, it was proper to do it, 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 it was the way you're supposed to be. He says, no, it's necessary. We had to celebrate. There's no other option. Son, older son, if you came home in the same way, I would celebrate you this way. We have to celebrate. Anyone who's seeking to imitate the heart of God, we have to celebrate. We have to be joyful. It's necessary when somebody comes to Jesus. When anyone comes for salvation, no matter where they're coming from, no matter who they are, no matter where they've been, no matter what they've done, they're coming for salvation, we are supposed to celebrate. It's necessary, he says. And notice he doesn't say it's necessary for just some people to celebrate. It's necessary just just for, for, for a select few to celebrate, but other people can go over in the corner and pout. No, he says it's just it's necessary to do it for anybody and everybody to celebrate. Celebrating the younger son, though, also doesn't mean the older son has any less love. Just because the younger one gets celebrated in that moment doesn't mean the older one doesn't get celebrated other moments. Doesn't mean the older one doesn't get love. Like I remember as a kid, sometimes uh, my grandparents at my sister's birthday, you know, I would want something when I was a little kid. They'd come for my little sister's one-year-old birthday, and I was three, and they would bring me a little present because I want something. I don't want her to get all the attention. I want something. But just because she was getting celebrated doesn't mean I was loved any less. I was the firstborn. I was a favorite, of course. But that's just the way it is. She's going she, to watch this tomorrow morning. I guarantee you, I'm going to get a text before she leaves for, to go teach at whatever. She leaves at 6 a.m. or something. I'm, I'm telling you right now, I would screenshot it and show you, but I'm not going to do that. I, I guarantee you she's going to text me and say, don't be talking about me like that. Maybe I'll cut this out of the sermon so she won't know that, that I talked about her. But we have this older son. He didn't think that it was faithful of the Father. He didn't think it was just of the Father to show that much deference and celebration to the younger son. 
say, that's not fair. <laughs> You're celebrating him when he did all that. You're celebrating him when he's that sinful. You're celebrating him when his past looks like this. That's not fair. That's not right. He needs to get right first. He needs to show a period of time where, where he's getting right before we offer him any kind of celebration or we offer him any kind of position. You're putting a ring on his finger. He doesn't deserve that ring yet. When in reality, none of us do. In reality, we're all sinners. None of us deserve the ring. None of us deserve the shoes. None of us deserve the robe or the fattened calf. But Jesus comes and he offers it when we come to him. Who a person was, what a person did, cannot keep them from Jesus. Your past cannot keep you from Jesus. Your past cannot keep you from Jesus. Wherever you're coming from, if you're coming to Jesus, your past is past, and Jesus is now. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect and you're not going to slip up and you're not going to make mistakes and you're, 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 you're not going to sin anymore. You're still going to do that. And there's still going to be people, even when you sin and you mess up, who are going to be like the older brother and they're not going to want to offer you any forgiveness or grace because they say, oh, that's just a pattern of behavior. That's who they are. That's not Jesus. He offered. If Jesus didn't offer that forgiveness and grace, he wouldn't have any disciples. When Jesus was arrested to go be crucified so we could be saved, his disciples ran away. Judas went off, the betrayer killed himself. The others ran scared, scared, and tried to hide their association with Jesus. The opposite of what Paul wrote about in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Well, that night they were. But does that mean that they're unforgiven? Does that mean they can't do anything for God? No. What does Jesus do? He takes the most egregious one, Peter, and puts him in charge of the whole thing. Man, if that were today, every one of us would kick Peter out. Man, he is not the pastor. He is done. I'm going to be tweeting that mess. I don't even know what you say. It's X now. I'm going to be Xing all over the place and putting him out there. And nobody's going to say anything about Peter. He's done for. No church is going to hire him. I'm going to make sure no church hires him. Because of what he did and what he said. Uh-uh, no, sir. Jesus takes him, receives him back, and puts him in charge. Even the disciples who saw what Peter did. John, the disciple, was right there in the same court, courtyard, that Peter was when Peter denied Jesus. John saw it. And Jesus still put Peter in charge. Over John. You think that thought ever came through John's head again? Man, I know what he did. Or you think John was of the mind of, I know what I did. I ran scared too. Yeah, I came back, and yeah, I took care of Jesus' mother after he died and went to heaven, uh, uh, ascended to heaven after his death, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. I took, okay, but I'm just a sinner just like Peter was. I'm no better than Peter. And we can glean that from John's gospel and, and John's letters and the book of Revelation. John, his actual theme is all about love. Jesus loves us even though we do all that stuff. Your past cannot keep you from Jesus. You know who keeps bringing up your past and that thing, that, that, that thing that's in the back of your mind you don't ever mention that's back there that nobody knows about? That's Satan who brings that up. That's not Jesus. Jesus doesn't give you guilt. He'll give you conviction, yes, to bring repentance, to bring faithfulness. But he won't give you guilt. Guilt and shame are tools of the enemy, not of the king, not of the father. 
Your past cannot keep you from Jesus, cannot keep you from faithfulness, cannot keep you from serving Jesus. If anything, our past should drive us to gratitude, should drive us to faithfulness because we know what Jesus has done for us. We shouldn't look at somebody else and say, well, their past is worse than my past, so I'm, I'm better than them. No, we shouldn't look at people that way. Ever. Ever. Because in Jesus, we're all the same. We're all the same. What does Paul say? There's no Jew or Gentile. There's no slave. There's no free. There's no man. There's no woman. There's no upper class, lower class, middle class. There's just people who need Jesus. And your past cannot keep you from Jesus. So the call today is come to Jesus. Because just like Billy Graham standing on the driveway, just like the father in the parable standing out in the yard, Jesus is waiting for you.